Hi friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, Forbes blogger, speaker, and now author of my own career book that has just released for pre-order on Amazon. You can probably guess the name as it's also called U-Turn, spelled Y-O-U-T-U-R-N. This book is all about getting unstuck, discovering your direction, and designing your dream career. I created the U-Turn podcast and wrote the U-Turn book with this goal of helping you reconnect to who you truly are and upgrading your confidence in work and in love. So if you're looking to get even more clarity beyond the podcast and even the book on where you belong in the workforce or you want to make a career pivot or just explore your purpose overall, we have a brand new free quiz to help you out with that. Just head on over to ashleystahl.com if you want to take it. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com for the free quiz. Also, I'm really excited to finally let you know that this episode has been brought to you by Organifi. I have fallen so in love with their smoothie protein, their chocolate, their vanilla, and also their green juice drink. I have both of these products every single day. And after years of declining and dodging sponsorship, because I didn't want to feel sticky promoting something to you, I decided that their products were so good, so transformative for my health and my morning routine that I reached out to them and asked if they wanted to sponsor the U-Turn show. So if you are inspired to upgrade your health during these uncertain times and you want products to add into your routine throughout the day, I just can't recommend them enough. I was able to get you a discount code for 15% off when you check out. All you gotta do is head on over to Organifi.com backslash U-Turn. It's spelled Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Y-O-U, T-U-R-N. Make sure you enter the code U-Turn at checkout on their website. And now let's dive in to this week's episode. If you give people this constraint on how much money they can spend on building a product or how much time they have uh, to do something, it allows them to take whatever they do have to work with and use it in so many more ways than uh, if you had abundance around you. And this works if you're facing scarcity and constraints. It also works if you simply just think about a time previously in your life when you were facing scarcity and, and constraints and you have that little reflection and then you get to work and you can expand the value and the productivity of everything that you have around you. Hey, U-Turn friends, it's Ashley here, and I'm so excited to bring Scott Sun and Shine onto the podcast. He's a professor in the business school over at Rice University. He's an organizational psychologist, and he's primarily uses you know field methodologies to examine questions around work and organizations. He's also the author of the book Stretch, which is Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. And his next book is out now, Joy at Work. He co-wrote that with Marie Kondo. Uh, and it is just such a game changer. I wanted to talk to you about that book, especially. And I figured we'd do an episode with Scott here on time management 101 because we're all working from home and it can be so challenging to be effective with your time 
time. And I know a lot of you out there have stories and narratives in your head about time and how there's never enough and you have this scarcity with it. I want to challenge that. And that's why I wanted to bring Scott onto the show. Thank you so much for being here and making the time. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I, I'm just, um, I don't know, curious, like after writing Stretch, what was it that inspired you to write Joy at Work or, or why did that feel like your next step? Well, when I was when I was writing Stretch and I was uh, tour, touring it and giving a lot of speeches about Stretch, I started getting questions about, well, how, how does your work and what you're doing uh, relate to Marie Kondo's work? And at first, quite frankly, Ashley, I was a little taken aback by these by these questions on you know on this serious uh, you know business school uh, professor doing uh, research, and I had had known uh, about Marie's Marie's book, and you know she was the person who helped uh, you know teach people basically how to organize their closets. And I'm like, huh, what is really the, what is really the connection here? I was really, I was really stumped by that. And um, then, then reviewers started making this connection. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm obviously missing something about her message. That's, that's not resonating. So actually I, I picked up the book and took a, took a, a closer look at it. And I realized that there's, there's some really strong connections uh, between what we're doing. Stretch is really a book that teaches us how to be resourceful how to do more with whatever we have. What Marie's work does is it so beautifully and powerfully teaches us to only resonate uh, with what we love and clear out everything else in our lives. Uh, Well, once all that stuff is cleared out, I think the question is, well, how do we still solve our day-to-day problems, whether they be at work or whether they be at home? And that's where being resourceful comes in. So part of of this, this project was really recognizing that even though we come from very different cultures, uh, we come from very different professional backgrounds, we don't, even, we don't even speak a common language, there's a strong bond that unites at a very deep level what both of us are doing, which is really to help readers find uh, satisfaction, enjoyment, uh, and reaching their goals by doing more with whatever they have and helping them recognize that a lot of what they do have around, whether it be physical items, whether it be appointments on their calendar, whether it be decisions that they're making, whether it be people in their networks, aren't necessarily part of what their innermost goals are. And once we can clean that out, we can get to focusing on building the life that we wanna build. So Marie and I, met in our house uh, at the time she was living in the San Francisco Bay area. And uh, she had become uh, aware of, of, of stretch and wanted to talk to me about some of the scientific ideas behind her work. And we had this great discussion about what social science would say about tidying and talking about the relationship between stretch and what she had done uh, in her previous books. And we realized this is just a unbelievable match. This is a a way of thinking about how we can take our messages to her audience and the more business-focused audience uh, that that Stretch uh, was focusing on and really teach people how to carve out the life that they want at work and beyond work uh, by clearing up all of the messes that we have. Mm. Okay. So I hear that there's a lot of synchronicity between your work and Marie Kondo's work. And you were able to kind of see that intersection between her mindset around tidying up and your more scientific approach and and everything that you wrote in the book stretch. 
What I'm curious about is you probably have noticed certain people have positive relationships with time and then other people have not so positive relationships with time. So I'm curious to understand from you, what is it that you, as you were writing the book, were noticing or acknowledging or um, just finding about people who seem to manage time, I don't want to say effortlessly, but with a lot of grace? Yeah, because I I don't think anyone does this effortlessly. And one of the challenges that we have with our time, of course, is it's in a resource that has has boundaries. We can't we can't make more time. And so what what we've realized in in writing the book is uh, time management really starts with understanding your goal because you have a lot of what we call activity clutter going on in our work lives and more generally in life, which are, are, are doing things um, that maybe kind of on the surface level we think are important, we think we should be doing, but when we really have an honest conversation with ourselves, we realize that they're just distractions. They're keeping us away from maybe doing work we ought to be doing uh, or we should be doing. Uh, but, you know, for example, email, I think is a, is a great, great example here is we end up burying ourselves in email and thinking that email is our job when in fact email is really just a tool to help us get our job done. So instead of working on a difficult project, we procrastinate with a lot of busy work. And when Mm -hmm. we start doing that busy work, we're just piling on lots of this activity clutter. And so it's not necessarily that someone is more productive or less productive. It's about how are we spending our time and being mindful of choosing activities that are meeting the goals that are most important to us. And I would say if most people do that and they have, we, we take people through a, a process where you go through how you're spending your time and you go through all of the activities and you characterize those. If you go through that process, you will realize that you end up with a lot more time because much of what you're spending your time with for some people is really just not what's most essential to either the job that you have uh, or the work that you're doing. So what we invite people to do is really ask three questions about every task that they're doing as they go through this this audit, which is, uh, first of all, look, we all work for other people, or I should say most of us work for other people. We have a supervisor. We have customers who depend on us. We have colleagues who depend on us. We cannot just, you know, all of a sudden walk into, uh, you know, our work situation and say, you know what, I don't like doing this. I don't want to do this. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is, well, what's really needed for my job? And, you know, there are things that we just, you know, that are just part of the job. I have to teach. I'm a professor uh, that takes time away from writing and research. Uh, It's something I have to do. I happen to enjoy it, but it's just something I need to do. So if it is something necessary, it's worth keeping. Mm. The second question you want to ask yourself is, is this, is doing this activity important for some type of joyful future that I want? Maybe you want to learn something. You want to grow in a particular way. You're trying to get a promotion. That's also a set of activities that are worth keeping. And then finally, and most importantly, is asking yourself, is doing this activity something that's just inherently joyful for me? It's something that I love doing. And that's also worth keeping. And as you go through your activities and you start characterizing, well, 
why am I keeping this? Because it's necessary. It's part of that joyful future, or I just love doing it. Uh, that's going to give you a very good diagnostic of how you're spending your time. And if most of what you're doing is because it's necessary uh, for your job, that tells you that the way that you're spending most of your time, you know, might not, might not be, uh, concordant with the goals that you have. But as you go through this thing, you start to at, at least get that mirror because what happens is we go through our day-to-day uh, lives and we don't take even just a moment to reflect on why we're doing the things we're doing. We often just do them because, well, every week I have this meeting on a Tuesday and uh, I, I go to this meeting and maybe I haven't said anything in, in months and I never stop to ask myself, you know, what is, what is the purpose of this? So I think this really gets people to start thinking about how they're spending their, their time and whether that makes uh, sense for how they want to be spending their life. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I know there's no takers here. So you said, number one is what's really needed from my job. Number two is, is this, is doing this activity important for some type of joyful future that I want? And number three, is this in activity inherently joyful? Number two, I kind of got stuck on if, is doing this activity important for some type of joyful future that I want? And I don't know if it's just because I'm an entrepreneur, but there's a lot of like shiny object syndrome, I think. And we can convince ourselves that things are important for the future that we want when really they're just a distraction. Like how does somebody, like, for example, I have my podcast, I have my book, um, my email list, I have all these different things. And I've been tinkering with the idea of doing a YouTube channel. And to me, that activity feels important for some type of joyful future that I want, because it's another place for people to find me. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how does somebody navigate shiny object syndrome and kind of like not dilute, kind of get delusional about like, yes, this is important for the future when really it's like, no, it, it, this isn't going to move the needle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a great question because it's so seductive when you see something in the abstract and the shiny object is just right in front of you. And it's like, oh, I want to shine the object. Maybe you want to shine the object because you think that it's uh, really important. You want it because you think it's something that just naturally makes sense of where you are in your career. Maybe people are telling you, Hey, of course you want this YouTube channel or whatever that might be for a, for an individual, because that's, that's just great. And you know, you can, you can do it. Why wouldn't you do it? So I'd say probably the most important thing to do is just kind of slow down a little and not be so fast to say yes. And there's actually some pretty fascinating research that says that, instead of immediately just agreeing to something and, you know, someone hands you the shiny object, it's, it's kind of hard uh, not, not to just, you know, grab it and say, okay, we're going to go ahead and start this process and, and get going with this, but just take a pause and have some like reflection time for, for a day or two and ask yourself, what is my work life going to be like with this shiny object? Not like, you know, how is it going to feel to actually have it uh, and have this possession? Uh, but what is it actually going to be like to, have to go through with this with this process. Is this how I want to be spending my time? And when we take a, a brief moment uh, to pause like that, uh, what the research shows is it empowers us to actually start to say no to these types of shiny objects. So the first piece of advice I would give is just just slow down. Don't be so eager, even if it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, nothing rarely in life is a no-brainer. It's worth just taking a moment of time to reflect on. The second thing I would say is if you haven't already, 
you should have some type of kind of ideal work-life vision that's out there. This is kind of your guiding principle that's going to shape not just how you spend your time, but the decisions that you make, what's, what objects are on your desk, uh, how you're going to build out your network, and, and so on. So be able to articulate that vision and ask yourself, is this YouTube channel, whatever that, that might that uh, shiny object is, is for you, is this something that's really going to be important uh, for that vision? Uh, and if it is, okay, that's a good sign. And you know, maybe it's worth doing the effort. But again, I think when most people have an honest conversation and they really hold up the mirror and lo- look at themselves, um, they're going to feel a lot differently than if they're just grabbing the shiny object without seeing that mirror. And I think that's really important because it's so easy to just mindlessly chase after things that we think we should want uh, because other people have them that are like us. Uh, And instead, just kind of take a step back and ask, how does this square away with with my work-life vision? And if it's not, then it actually does become a no-brainer. And you say yes, you say no, no matter how seductive it appears on the surface. Because deep down, it's just yet another distraction that's going to take you away from work that you love even more. Because remember, when you're taking that shiny object, it means you're spending less time with other things in your life. And you got to ask yourself, what do you really want to be spending your time on? Yeah. And this actually kind of lends itself, I think, to a lot of people in corporate who are trying to prioritize, especially right now working from home. I was reading an article you wrote in Time about how, you know, like working from home can seem like a convenience initially, but it also has these new challenges. And and also, by the way, in that article, I found it interesting. You talked about how research indicates that if you let your colleagues see your personal space, it reduces that feeling of psychological distance, meaning like, if, so if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're working from home in his article, he talks about how if you show the people at work what your little workspace looks like, it seems to make them feel a little bit closer to you. I found that really interesting. Um, but kind of going back to all of these distractions that could come up, whether it's kids or, you know, family members, stuff like that. Um, I think another distraction kind of going to this, this um, question you ask of is doing this activity important for some type of joyful future that I want a lot of people's bosses aren't prioritizing for them and they need help with prioritizing. So let's say that all of their projects feel like code red. You know, sometimes people have that boss where it's like everything is urgent. Um, How do you suggest somebody communicate in a way where they can get support with time management and prioritizing at work? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question because we get we get stuck in what I call the the urgency trap, which is you know every everything seems urgent and we're putting down what we're doing to respond to the next fire drill and then the next fire drill and then we're trying to multitask to to get our way out of it and we're, all we're really doing, Ashley, is just creating more messes. And let me let me unpack a little more about what I mean by that. Uh, first is. Uh, when you feel like everything is is urgent, uh, nothing really becomes urgent because there's no there's no hierarchy there. So not everything could be the most uh, the most urgent. And when I say urgent, I mean there's a deadline that if you don't get this done by a certain time, uh, it just can't be done at all. Um, you have to distinguish urgent from important. Important means that if it doesn't get done, there's pretty big consequences. Something could be really urgent. Uh, but not important. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, you got to distinguish between the two. So when your boss comes to you and says, drop everything, I think the first question to ask is, uh, you know, 
is this urgent? What's the deadline? Uh, and is this important? And if it's if it's if it's you know only one versus the other, that doesn't mean that uh, that should necessarily go to the to the top of the of the list. Now, obviously, you know you have a, a boss. You can't just go ahead and say you know I'm not I'm not going to do this. But you can ask some questions, such as you know when is this really due? I think there's a lot of fake urgency at work where you know people are trying to get you to do things on their schedule because it makes their lives easier. But you also have competing demands with other people asking for things. So I think you need to kind of have a relationship with with coworkers and say, look, I'm a reliable and dependable person who will get things done on time, but I really need to know what is the actual deadline? Not the deadline of when you it would be nice to have, but when you really need to have it. And if you can develop that reputation that says, I'm going to hit these real deadlines, uh, people are going to uh, be less likely to come to you with this with this fake urgency. The second thing to do is if you are facing a lot of urgent and important tasks right now, and I think we're just in unusual times right now. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. People are being asked to do things in ways they haven't been asked to do. They're you know, many times not working in the same building. So I think there's a lot of craziness out there. And I think we need to acknowledge that that's really hard right now because there's, a, you know, people are fighting right now for their, for their businesses and, and for their jobs. And I, I think we need to acknowledge that. But we also need to realize that if we're going to try and get ourselves out of this mess by multitasking, by doing more than one thing at a time, it's actually making things worse. So the research on multitasking shows that uh, people who multitask tend to be about 40% less productive uh, than those who don't multitask. And this might come as a shock to people because you would think, and you know, I, I knew this uh, uh, or thought of this before I, I got involved in doing this type of research is that, well, look, when you admire the multitasker, they can do like four things at once and you become really envious. But what the science actually shows is there's actually no such thing as multitasking. Multitasking is really almost like an illusion because what happens is the brain could really just focus on one hard task at a time. So we focus our cognitive energy on, on doing one thing. When we multitask, what happens is we switch rapidly between doing one hard thing to another hard thing. And every time we switch, there's a cost. There's a cost in what it takes for the, for the brain to be able to get acclimated to the next task that it's doing. So when you're actually jumping from task to task to task, uh, you're, you're, you're being a lot less efficient in the time. So, I mean, and I see this, of course, in, in class all the time when people think uh, I teach a lot of professional MBA students. If someone's on the phone trying to respond to a work email and listen to my class uh, and I call on them for a question, I can tell you 98% of the time they're not going to know the answer to that question because they didn't hear it because mm -hmm. they can't, they don't have the attention to do both things. So I think we need to be careful of of uh, avoiding the, the multitasking trap as a way of, of getting out. So I would say, you know, really have an honest conversation with your supervisor and say, look, these are the five or six th things going on. I can develop a reputation as someone who can deliver work on time, but I can't have these artificial deadlines being opposed, uh, imposed upon me, uh, empower me and trust me uh, before writing me off that I can handle this. And if you can deliver that, I think what you'll find is that you get a lot more freedom and space because the truth is, 
bosses are pretty busy too. They're managing lots of different moving parts. And what better than to have a reliable and dependable employee that you can just say, here are the real deadlines. These are the six things I need to do. Uh, come to me if you need support or help. Otherwise, I'm going to let you figure this out yourself. Mm, so powerful to listen to this. And I also find that um, multitasking, I don't know if you have any research on what it does to your like mental health, but I feel a little bit depressed on days where I'm heavily multitasking. And I think it's because like, and I don't, I don't know where my head is going with this, but it almost feels like I'm trying to be in control when I'm multitasking, like by getting more done. But what I actually feel is totally out of control because I'm all over the place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's mentally exhausting because all of that switching from, from one thing to another, and then you get to the end of the day and you ask yourself, where did the whole day go? I felt like I was working really hard, but when I look at my to-do list, nothing really got done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of to-do lists and emails, I, one thing that I, I was also reading like in your time magazine article, just about some tips for cleaning up your email. So you talked about subject line and helping people kind of recognize if something's important or not through the subject line, being careful with reply, reply all and keeping emails brief. And all of that felt really, really helpful. But what I also was kind of sitting with after reading this was what do you do when other people have poor email habits and it's kind of being sent your way? Like, how do you set boundaries or navigate that? Because for example, I write for Forbes and there's one publicist who, um, I did a feature on one of her clients cause I thought it would resonate for my column, but she wouldn't stop following up with, with when I could air it. And due to COVID, I had to prioritize for Forbes, anything COVID and workplace related. So I let her know, like, you know, this will air. I just don't know when, because I have to focus on anything present with COVID And she followed up like once or twice a week just to want to know. And so there's a lot of like, I think like kind of like email bullying or badgering. And I ended up having to let her know like, hey, I don't think we can work together in the future. Like the amount of follow-up just isn't supportive to the kind of PR relationships I'm looking to create. And, you know, you have have great clients and, and I wish you the best, but this will be the last article we do. Um, and I'm not afraid to be like that assertive because I care so much about my personal life. And when people, um, kind of have habits in their work that requires my presence, you know, it feels like, okay, I'm going to protect my personal life and well-being. But I know for a lot of people, this is really, really challenging. So I'm curious if you have any feedback for number one, how could I have done better with that? And number two, what can everybody do with like the person who sends the five paragraph email every time? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the challenge, of course, um, when we were taking uh, some of the Comrie methods from the home to work is, uh, you know, we have, in some sense, less less control over our environment, because we yeah. work, we work with other people, we have bosses, we have customers, and, and so on. And, and email is, is one of those places where there are people who just have poor email etiquette and they want to clutter our lives with their priorities and they don't think about the impact that it has on on the recipients of those messages. So I'd say I think that the first thing is to recognize that one, this just could be an education issue where people people don't necessarily realize uh, the damage that they're doing. So if you work with them, for example, and they're at your organization and you have a relationship with them in a very 
you know, disarming way to have a conversation with them and say, hey, you know, I'm very methodical with my email. I got your first message. I wrote you back that said I was going to get back to you in a week or whenever that time frame is, unless it's urgent and important. Um, you know, there's really no need to keep following up with me. I'm on top of it. And mm-hmm. if you can deliver, you know, what you're supposed to in that time frame, uh, I think that person will realize that, you know, this is someone who doesn't need to uh, be badgered. So I think that's, that's the first thing. Um, I think if it, still becomes persistent. And it sounds like in this example, this publicist, uh, like I think a lot of publicists yeah. are, they, they're just, they're just, rel- they're just relentless <laughs> sometimes with these things. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's totally fine to just, you know, start routing that stuff through a filter and, uh, you know, putting it in a separate place so it doesn't clutter your inbox and, you know, check it once a week and, uh, you know, see if there's anything important that you missed and otherwise, uh, you know, discard that stuff because this person has not respected you as a person. And, yeah. you know, if, if you've tried to reach out to them and, and make amends and they're still trying to trample all over you, um, I, I think you've got to make tough choices there. And, uh, you know, in, in, in this case, that, that might have been warranted. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but if you're anything like me working from home, this quarantine has got you craving some structure and I have gotten so much out of committing to a morning routine. And for me, that's looked like burning some Palo Santo every morning, sipping some coffee while I'm journaling, and of course, making my daily protein shake with Organifi's vanilla protein powder. I just put a scoop of their vanilla protein, frozen organic strawberries, half a frozen banana and coconut milk into the blender and boom, That little candy addicted five-year-old living inside of me gets so happy feeling like she started her workday with what tastes like a vanilla milkshake with strawberries in it. So if you follow me on the gram, you know that even when I try to eat healthy, I tend to have little snacksidents and that's why I am so grateful that Organifi is now sponsoring the U-Turn podcast. It is such a milestone for us to have them supporting the show and I'm pretty sure that without their super healthy protein powder, I'd be lacking in my morning routine. So if you're looking for some consistency and some structure in your diet, I'm really in love with their products, which is why we wanted to get you hooked up with a discount when you go to Organifi.com slash U-Turn. That's O-R-G. A-N-I-F-I dot com backslash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N for 15% off. Now let's get back to the episode. So I'm, I'm picturing the person right now listening and they're thinking to themselves, I'm working from home. I've got a really demanding job. Maybe they're going to already take our advice around asking your boss to prioritize And those of you who listen to the podcast, I don't know if you ever heard the episode with Carter Cast, um, former CEO of Walmart.com. Do you know him, Scott? Uh, I don't. You guys would so get along because his his, uh, episode on here, he, he just kind of... He's such a leader, um, and he talks about how to have that communication in that episode. So those of you who are looking to even go deeper on this, he talks about how to ask your boss, how do I prioritize? So I, I find that like confrontation in the workplace can be so uncomfortable. And even when I was listening to your feedback where you're like, Hey, I already got back to you. Like people are going to feel so sensitive that we're being passive aggressive or whatever. What, what advice would you have for somebody who's listening to this and thinking, yeah, like, you know, Becky over at work, she sends me like 12 paragraph emails and she's my, you know, I really need to like be pay attention to her emails, but this is like taking over an hour of my work day that I could be doing all this other stuff. What would be the most important message you would have for that person? 
I, I, I would say if you treat people like humans with, with dignity and respect and with worth, um, it's going to do a pretty good job at disarming them. Now, um, people have a hard time reading tone and emotion. So if you're working uh, remotely, I mean, I wouldn't certainly do this over email. I mean, it's best to do a face-to-face conversation, but I realize that's not realistic for, for most of us right now. Um, but I, I think if you at least can get on the phone and just kind of explain and say, look, this is the impact that it's it's having on me. And um, let me hear your concern because I realize that you're probably writing to me many times asking for the same thing because someone's pressuring you. So, you know, let's maybe understand each other's perspective so we can kind of collectively come up with a solution so you can get what you need and I don't have to have my inbox constantly cluttered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love this. And I, you actually bring up a good point when it comes to joy at work and that's figuring out what is supposed to be an email and what is supposed to be a conversation. And I know that a lot of meetings have now been replaced by emails and that's a very good thing for a lot of people, but there's also some confusion of like, how do you cultivate more joy at work through navigating that um, line of, okay, let me just get rid of this issue and email about it versus let me pick up the phone and call this person. How would you recommend people kind of get some perspective on that? Look, email is, email is really good for quick updates Uh, it's not good for discussions because what happens is you just get a lot of back and forths with us, you know, you emailing something, someone emailing you back. And next thing you know, this is, you know, a 20 message thread. So if you're trying to have a conversation, if you're trying to have a discussion, generate a creative idea, come up with making a decision that requires a collective discussion, those are usually best for meetings. Those meetings don't need to be long, but you want that richer form of communication, that back and forth. If you're simply just communicating an idea, an email is fine for that if it doesn't require dialogue. But I think as we've seen during the pandemic, what a lot of people have realized is these previously sacred meetings that we've just done because we've always done them really are just informational meetings where we're just providing updates. And there's so much easier, so many easier ways of of doing that. Uh, And I think that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that this is teaching people to be a lot more productive with their time. And part of that is just the constraints of it's hard, it's hard to meet over, over zoom uh, or other, other technologies. It's the constraints of realizing that I'm working from home and maybe I have my kids at home and I'm trying to be an educator, a dedicated employee uh, and deal with everything else going on in my life that I don't have the luxury of going to a meeting that's going to simply waste my time when an email could take care of the same issue in two minutes. So I think there is a sense of efficiency practices that people are developing right now that I think really sticks to them. Mm. And I would say just one other thing uh, I'd add is a lot of our issues uh, with, with time, I think, come from what I like to call meeting FOMO, which is this, this idea that if I'm not in the room uh, when you know this meeting is happening, it means, look, I'm, I'm not important. My career is not important. I'm not on the right track. I'm offended I didn't get invited to this meeting. Uh, even though I know going isn't going to help me with my job, my joyful future, or is intrinsically 
joyful. I, I, I know it's not one of those three keep criteria, but I want to do it anyway, because I feel like if I'm not there, it's a bad sign for me and I'm going to miss out. I think people's mentality is really beginning to switch with that because they realize as they're trying to get through their days under these difficult circumstances that that email, that I'm sorry, that meeting is just yet another distraction that takes them away from what they love doing and what they need to be doing. Got it. And, and, you know, I actually, as I was reading some of your articles before our interview in an, another article you wrote in time was more in reference to your book, stretch. You talked about the key to success is not in having more and how we're in this more, more, more society, more money, more things, more time. But that in the book stretch, you talk a, a little bit more about instead of accumulating resources, um, the more effective approach of stretching and how the science of stretching offers an effective, more fulfilling alternative to use these practical tools and techniques to accomplish more with what we have. I know that it seems like your books can go, you know, so hand in hand. And so I'm curious in your book stretch, what are some key points that you can share with everybody here around that side of productivity, instead of pursuing more, working with what you have? Well, so what's kind of bizarre, but really delightful about the way that the brain works is when it has less around, uh, it actually becomes uh, more generative. And so what I mean by that is when we face constraints, whether it be constraints about objects that we have um, tools to solve, time that we might have, it loosens up the brain. It almost gives the brain a license to be creative, to recognize that we're in a situation of mild or maybe even severe duress because we don't have what we think we should need. And we, with this permission slip, it allows us to take whatever's around us and get so much more out of it. So, you know, it could be, uh, you know, there's that, that sense that you're, you're trying to write something. And maybe you've seen this in writing your own book, Ashley, is that, you know, right before a deadline comes, that's often when a stroke of genius happens. And that's when uh, you could be at your most uh, productive time. But it also happens with, uh, with physical objects and other things too. And there's some really fascinating research that looks at if you give people this constraint on how much money they can spend on building a product or how much time they have uh, to do something. Um, it allows them to take whatever they do have to work with and use it in so many more ways than uh, if you had abundance around you. And this works if you're facing scarcity and constraints. It also works if you simply just think about a time previously in your life when you were facing scarcity and, and constraints and you have that little reflection and then you get to work and you can expand the value and the productivity of everything that you have around you. Mm, you know, and I also love the distinction you make around stretching. You talk about how a lot of people go into stress and agonize over the question, what am I missing that others have? And it just keeps us in this more, more, more mode versus what can I do with what I have? And, um, I think this is a powerful question because I went to a seminar and uh, Bob Proctor and Mary Morrissey were leading it. And she offered this idea generating question that I never forgot. And I still use in my journal today. It said, she said, what can I do with where I am now with what I have now to get closer to, and then you put your goal in. And I can see how this is a very similar question. What can I do with what I have? And it, th these idea generating questions can open up so much creativity for us. 
And this also got me inspired to ask you about creativity. Like, I know a lot of people listening right now are navigating productivity, and there's something that feels so masculine about productivity and getting things done. And I know creativity can require a little more feminine energy, like being in your being in your body, really, really feeling something or having open space to think. So what are some tips that you kind of uncovered as you were writing both of your books uh, around creativity and why some people are more creative than others or how they're able to do that? Well, I, I think actually, and I, I think the, the research uh, bears this out, is that we are all naturally and inherently creative. And I think it's important to recognize that because we, we like to kind of get categorizing people and thinking, oh, they're, they're really, they're super creative. I, I could ne- I could never be like that. Our natural state, uh, we are, we are born to be, to be creative. What happens is as we get socialized through school, uh, through work and just through popular culture, that creativity begins to be stripped away from us. And so, and you can, you can try this a very easy, easy way is what I call the frying pan test. You can take any young child, uh, you can give them a frying pan and just see what they do with it. And it could be a step stool. It could be a bathtub for, for dolls or action figures, uh, on a really bad day in the middle of a pandemic, it could be a weapon to go after a sibling. Uh, you give it to a grown-up, and we've been taught to just use things in certain ways, and we make a scramble out of it. And that's the best that we can do because work and education stamp out our creativity. Creativity is not simply about doing artistic masterpieces, whether it be a painting or some type of musical composition. There's research called little c creativity. This is the creativity that most of us draw from. It's the creativity of what it takes to solve problems in our lives. It's about Mm -hmm. how do we get things to work out when we don't necessarily have everything that we need. And so my number one tip for how to get more creative in, in doing these types of things is to just try and break free from these stifling institutions that are telling us that there's only one way that we ought to do something. Cause there's usually many ways to get to the same type of, of answer. And I, I love this story in, in stretch. I talk about um, this parable about this physics teacher who's trying to test one of his students and He wants to know what the height of a building is. And he gives the student a barometer and says, go solve the problem. And deep down, the physics teacher is all smug because he thinks, well, the only way to solve this, of course, is to take the uh, barometric readings at the very bottom of the building and at the very top of the building. But the student comes back and says, that's not the answer. That's not how I would do it. I would tie a string to the barometer and measure the length of the string. I would use the barometer as a ruler and go up the staircase. I would exchange the barometer with the building superintendent uh, for him to give me the information for how tall the building is. And I think that underscores a problem that a lot of our thinking has, which is we just get accustomed to this is the way that we've always answered something. So it's the way I should try and answer things. And once we get into that mindset, we close down our creativity for solving our own problems, our own way. Okay. And, um, I also know you've been really helpful just around helping people choose the proper career path. So 
you know, and, and that's such a matter of creativity, I think sometimes is like really tuning into where you come alive and creativity. There's so much aliveness in that. Um, what are some thoughts you have for people who are listening right now where they're taking your feedback on how to prioritize or they're thinking about being more creative, but ultimately they don't feel like they're even in the right path. And as a result, time management itself is kind of tough because they don't even want to be where they are, you know? So it's really, it's really hard once you get down a path to get off of it because you develop relationships, you get accustomed to doing things, your routines kind of set in. So of course it would be best for everyone to know what that path is at the very beginning. But the reality is, is, I mean, who really does? I mean, it's, it's just, it's, you know, some people do, and I admire them uh, that they know exactly what that path is. But the truth of the matter is that most people are going to require experimenting. So I think if we start with the mindset that especially early in our careers to just experiment with things and not just take the pathway that we think we ought to be taking that our parents have been pushing us to take. I mean, I know this is hard, uh, but to kind of just recognize and say, I want to kind of experiment a little and think if I'm on the right path and then have the courage to be able to choose the path that makes the most sense. So I would say that's kind of the first thing. Uh, But I think the second thing, and this is the thing that most people overlook, is no matter what path we're on, is to try and recognize that we can still try and customize that path in ways that make our work more enjoyable, make our work more meaningful, and make our our work more impactful. So we have a a job description that we get when we start a a career, and very few people uh, actually do everything to the T of what's in that job description. There's kind of almost like an informal job description. And what that does is it affords us some type of latitude to kind of customize our jobs. And there's uh, research in the area called job crafting, where we literally think about sculpting our jobs in ways that make them more meaningful to us. And so that might be saying, okay, maybe what I'm doing right now isn't most in enjoyable, but it's important for some foundational skills, but can I volunteer for a project or help out on a team for doing something that will give me exposure, that will be more fun, that will teach me something that I want to teach? And then, you know, that gives you some more data. And then you can ask yourself, okay, knowing that, you know, what I'm doing now might not be the best, but in a few years, uh, this is what I'll be doing because I've volunteered for these types of projects at work. Is this what I want to be doing? And if it is, that's great. Maybe it turns out you are on the right path. If it's not, it's really best to know and have those early warning signs as soon as possible, because the longer time goes on, the harder it is to make that switch. I love what you're sharing. And it reminds me of an episode we did with Dan Cable. I'm not sure if he created that research. Um, do you know who created the job crafting? I think it might've been him. Uh, no, it was, it was actually, uh, Jane Dudden and, uh, Amy Riznewski, uh, were the, uh, uh, creators of that research. Wow. Okay. So he talks about this in our interview, um, about like how to turn a bland job into like a grand job, you know, where if you don't like your job, there's so much initiative you can take to kind of take it by the reins. And sometimes I think we just get into this autopilot. I feel like you're so full of information. Is there something that I haven't asked you about that you think would be so powerful for people to understand when it comes to looking at your book, stretch and also joy at work, um, as it relates to their career, that would be really helpful. Well, I, I would just want to uh, say something about the, the times that we're in right now. And I think that, you know, on some level, you might be thinking about, well, 
why why joy at work right now we're in the midst of a pandemic and we have kind of more essential and basic needs uh, to take care of but what's really interesting about the experience and the emotion of joy is it's almost a superpower it really helps undo a lot of harm from negative experiences and negative emotions so i'd say the world needs a lot more uh, joy right now you know even as as strange as that might sound because there are just a lot of people suffering right now and in in despair but for us to be able to build ourselves up uh, and help build other people up we need to get into a better headspace and that's why i think uh you know although i certainly uh, didn't imagine joy at work coming out in the midst of this pandemic but that's why i think that a book like this is even more needed than ever right now mm-hmm. i'm so grateful to have had you on the show thanks so much for all of your insights well thanks again for having me ashley Hey there, it's Ash here, and I am reflecting on the episode with Scott Sonnenschein about uh, his book with Marie Kondo, Joy at Work, and obviously uh, Marie Kondo's first book, um, The Magic of Tidying Up, I think it sold over 10 million copies, maybe even way more, Um, so she is clearly an authority on this, and I was so excited to be able to talk to Scott about how to be more effective, and it has, our conversation just reaffirmed for me one of the biggest breakthroughs that I had in my life, which was that when you want to fix something or make something better, more often than not, instead of adding something to the equation, it requires us removing something from the equation. And I think this is really the crux of personal development because a lot of times if a client comes into my career coaching or life coaching practice, um, they're coming to me to get to their next level in some way or because they have some sort of goal or they want to get clarity, whatever have you. And more often than not, what I'm finding is that the reason they don't have what they want is because not because they need to go get something or add something to the resume, but because they have a personal block that they're believing in or buying into that is really standing in their way. So whether somebody wants to make a career pivot and the mindset that they're holding is that they're going to have to take a pay cut or they're not qualified or they're going to have to start over, all of these beliefs are different blocks. And in the same way that we can remove an actual item um, or a material thing, I think that a lot of the work sometimes is removing a belief that we have to keep us in the energy we want to be in. And when it comes to your work, I think the most important thing that you could do is an exercise that I've done a long time ago. And it it involves two, you, you kind of take a piece of paper and you draw four squares. So four quadrants. And at the top you say, um, like, and don't like, and then on the left side, up and down, you say good at, not good at. So you're able to look at what are you good at that you like? What are you good at that you don't like? What are you not good at that you, you know, that you like? That's maybe a zone of growth for you. Like maybe you're not good at something, but you want to get better at it. And what are you not good at that you don't like? That helps you kind of figure out. um, and, And it's so interesting when you do this exercise and you write this into the four quadrants, because it helps you really get a idea on how much work are you doing throughout the day that you aren't good at and you don't like. If that if that uh, quadrant of your piece of paper has too many things listed, it might be time for you to reconsider what skill set you're using and what job you're truly 
in, um, so, so important and ultimately kind of reminding us that the, the way that we can have a happier career in life is often removing things that we don't want to be doing versus adding things. And it doesn't mean that you need to take on a job you don't want, but what it can mean is that it's important for you to deeply reflect on who you are, what do you want to bring to the table? And if you're doing something that isn't aligned for you to be really honest with yourself so that you can make that change because your career is long. Life is short, but your career can sometimes feel long. I've had so many clients who come into my practice with a 50 year career and maybe they've done five different things at 10 years each. It's so important that you make the changes you need to make right now. Don't hold on to the past and make it make you a prisoner of your future. Really honor what you know about yourself. Do this exercise. Again, it's grabbing a piece of paper, um, putting a cross through it so that there's four quadrants. And at the, the top left is uh, good at, the top right is not good at, and then the left side is like, and the left bottom is don't like. And so you can kind of look at what are you good at that you like? What are you not good at that you like? All of that. And it's really important to be able to assess that. So wishing you well, hope that this helps you spark more joy at work. And uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. If any of our guests mention any resource that you're interested in, you can head on over to ashleystall.com and press the podcast tab to see any show notes. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com. On that page, you're also going to see our brand new free quiz, helping you discover which career path you're actually meant for. It's followed by tons of content-packed emails about your personality in the work workforce. And of course, we just can't thank you enough for your written reviews. These reviews mean a lot for our show to keep getting out there. So if you ever send me a DM on the gram, and I'm so grateful that you have, I would love it if you would copy and paste that into the podcast app of your smartphone as a written review. It would mean so much for us over here at the show. Thanks again for being here. And I can't wait to connect with you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.